So I've got quite an interesting background in the fact that I'm trying to combine engineering and race car driving together. I didn't graduate high school. I was very much hands-on oriented. He's like, your turn. And I'm like, there is no way I'm driving. My mum will kill me. And he's like, just jump in. It's like a motorbike. So I learned to drive when I was 10. I got a six horsepower go-kart engine, 160cc, and strapped it onto a push bike. I built it in four days, and uh, that was the beginning of the death trap, as my parents called it. The motorbike engine car that you saw, that was like the pinnacle of combining all my engineering degrees plus manufacturing together to build a pretty awesome little car. And that was one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. It is not easy to just randomly go up and talk to people about something so sensitive. I wanted to start off this episode in a different way. We were, thanks to you guys listening, in the top 10% of podcasts most shared globally, which is so impressive and means so much to me for a podcast that is less than a year old. Still, I want to set you a challenge of getting into that top 1%. So if you have ever enjoyed an episode or thought that the message from a guest was worth sharing, please send that episode to your friends. If you know someone that loves cars and is looking to get into the industry or change careers, help give them some inspiration. And speaking of inspiration, let's see what we've got today. James, we'll start with uh, what ignited your passion for cars then. That's interesting. I think it, it more started off with engines. When I was growing up, Dad built us like a hill trolley. So just you know, plank of wood wheels on it from a pram and we'd push each other up and down the driveway. And I hated taking turns pushing my brother. I enjoyed being pushed, but I hated to push him. And I was like, if only we had an engine on the back of this thing. And uh, I happened to bump into a friend when I was 10 years old. Uh, he was riding motorbikes. So I got into motorbikes. I bought, well, I didn't buy. My parents actually got me two scooters out of the paper for free. That like 1960s old school scooters had a basket on the front. They didn't run. Uh, and then that sort of kick-started everything off. Um, there's a guy at church, two guys that were quite influential in in helping me. One of them, um, Graham Prawl, he helped teach me about engines. So two-stroke engines, four-stroke engines, and the concepts. He'd sit down before church half an hour and draw it all out on paper. And I was like, oh, okay, that's how it works. So then I started pulling these scooter engines apart. And then I had another guy, Richard Reed, who taught me about electronics as well. He taught me when I was eight. So I had an understanding of DC circuits, pretty fundamental, um, and then just started fault-finding these scooters. Ended up getting them both running and uh, – that sort of triggered into motocross, which also then um, having this friend, Lloyd Busey, his dad, funny enough, owned a car dealership. And this is uh, the first time. So I learned to drive when I was 10. And the funny story of that was he was 11 at the time. And he, we were always hanging around his dad's car dealership. It was kind of this remote block and had a bit of bush behind it. And his dad had an old Datsun Sunny, it's Datsun uh, Sunny 1000cc, and it was just sitting out in the paddock, basically. And he went up to his dad. He's like, hey, if I get the car running, can I drive it around the back paddock? And his dad thinking, like, this car's never going to run. It's been sitting there a couple of years, whatever. He's like, yeah, sure, go ahead, whatever. And so Lloyd went across next door to the mechanics and was like, hey, can you help me get this car running? <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, he got the car running and his dad's like, oh, no, what have I done? And so we just spent, you know, the next six months terrorizing around in this bush track. And uh, he was driving to start with, and I was just passenger. And it was gravel tracks. It was probably, you know, one and a half lanes wide. And we're just going sideways, just crazy, dodging trees. 
And then after about two days, he's like, your turn. And I'm like, there is no way I'm driving. My mum will kill me. And he's like, just yeah. jump in. It's like a motorbike. Uh, he's like, the gears, you know, just on your hand instead and the clutches on the floor and whatever. So I jumped in and I'm like, do, 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 do. <laughs> and then he's like, boring, go sideways. And he just grabs the steering wheel and rips it sideways around the corner. And then uh, from that point on, I, was, I, I pretty much learned to drive sideways before I learned to drive straight. So <laughs> that, that, that kick started everything off, um, motorbikes, car driving, and uh, that just that passion for driving something on the limit. That came right from a from a young age. Yeah, and these these um I guess what I, I want to call the mentors that they came into your life. Did you did you look for them or were they just there and they happened to know something that you're interested in? Like how did that form a relationship with them? I think it started off with video games mainly. I was always going yeah. over their house video games, um, Red Alert and Command and Conquer back in the early days. So and then they just swore. I guess I was transitioning into wanting to learn about engines. Um, Actually, Richard Reed, that's what sparked it. He built a go-kart with a starter motor on it from a car and just had a car battery and had a pedal that just engaged a piece of copper and it would it was either flat out or not flat out. And I was like, huh, that's interesting. I want that. Obviously, growing up with the hill trolleys and wanting an engine on something. And we kind of tried, but I didn't have a welder and it's impossible to bolt anything onto, you know, bicycle or anything. Um, we had a starter motor. We... We're going to try and do that, but it didn't work out. But when I turned 13, that's when I bought a welder and then things went crazy, started going crazy. And the first project I built, I got a six horsepower go-kart engine and 160cc and strapped it onto a push bike. And yeah. I built that, I built it in four days over a long weekend. And, uh, that was the beginning of the death trap, as my parents called it. And so the thing did 75 mile an hour. I had it clocked on the freeway. Um, with one of my friends driving down the track and yeah that was that was fun so i used to ride that around i basically had a license at uh you know 13 years old and had my freedom so i was riding this bicycle thing around everywhere and got a bit of a rep for it i think <laughs> well it's, it's an amazing bit of independence i guess isn't it because if you look i i could do that i mean i could do it 13 but i mean in the uk if i was riding around on a, on a, on a motorbike i definitely I, someone would stop me or someone would have a go at me or i think something bad would happen so like I guess is this is Australia at the time, isn't it? So are you having more of, I guess, an ability to just try these things and have more like open, open view to the to the world of driving my motorbike at, at thirteen and it opening up those experiences for you as well? I didn't say I wasn't in trouble. I mean, ah, the police were go. a bicycle going, you know, faster on the the footpath, the sidewalk than the cars are going on the street. That tends to attract a bit of attention. <laughs> But they, they'd pull me over and they're like, I couldn't do anything. I was 13 years old. The law doesn't allow them to do anything. Yeah. And they're like, take this thing home. Tell your dad to stop building you these crazy contraptions. And I was like, I built it. And they're like, yeah, stop lying. You can't build something like that. So, yeah. <laughs> so what, what does it do to a 13? Well, then does, does it give you, like, I don't know, a, a, also or just a chance to prove yourself then, I guess, if, if people aren't believing you're building these contraptions then? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. A lot of people, when they saw that thing, they're like, did you build this? Like really, and it was it was quite ingenious. I started off, went through a few different iterations. Um, at the start, I was using bicycle chains, and bicycle chains don't hold up too well to six horsepower. Um, they kept snapping, so I'd have a chain breaker on me. I'd have to take out two links, connect it back together. It had a derailleur on the back wheel um, with six speed mountain bike gears, so I'd have to have actual gears to go through. Uh, after third gear, it wouldn't pull anymore. The motor didn't have enough power. So it max out, like I said, 75 mile an hour. But, and it, on the other side, um, cause I had to step down the gear ratio quite a bit. So I had a centrifugal clutch, but 
the brass bearing in it was just a bush bearing. It wasn't roller bearing or anything. And that would flog out from idling and just chew it out. And then it would throw the chain off. And so I got annoyed with that and came up with another design with, from the side view, I had a small pulley on the engine from an alternator. Then I had a larger pulley from a washing machine that I got, old school washing machine. And then I had a third idler pulley that I got as a just a tensioner from a car with a bearing in it. And I put that on a pivot and connected it up to the, the lever on the handlebars. And what that did was it took the slack, uh, took the tension off the chain and made it slack. So it would act as a clutch. So mm. when you pull the clutch in and stopped, it would just be a loose belt and the engine could just sit there free spinning. And then you'd just drop the clutch and it would grab and uh, it worked very well. I could do burnouts on that thing. It wouldn't slip. It was it was great. And when it comes to looking at getting a career and, and finding like a way to do this and get paid for it, like what was your options? And did you like, how did you find a thing you could do with do all this? And, and what was your path like? That's interesting. I think my career path has changed in multiple different ways as I've grown up and sort of tried to hone in what exactly it is that I want to focus on. Uh, the fabrication side of things was fun. It gave me a lot of options. It's like, okay, I want to build something uh, and building fast cars. I mean, I couldn't afford a fast car. So growing up when I was 18, I ended up putting a 750cc motorcycle engine in a car, the first iteration, and it was front wheel drive. And I was going for power to weight ratio as a car called a Suzuki Hatch. And Hatch is the brand, well, the model name of it, which is weird. And it was a 500cc three-cylinder car originally came out, I think it's 28 horsepower, front-wheel drive. And what I did was I dropped the motorbike engine into that. Uh, I left the front-wheel drive gearbox in there because it was already connected to the CV joint, so it was an easy way to get power to the axles without doing too much modifications. I angle-grinded all the bell housing off this gearbox so I could then drop the motorcycle engine in on top and have it fit under the hood. And where the clutch goes on the gearbox, what I did was I welded a small sprocket off the motorbike onto that input um, shaft for the gearbox and then had the motorbike engine sitting directly above it that I just ran a small chain to. And so I left the motorbike engine, left the motorbike engine in top gear, six gear. So it would be pretty much one to one coming out that output sprocket and then used the clutch in the motorbike engine that was already there, connected that up to the foot pedal. And that was a fun little car. Even though it was only a 750cc, um, Kawasaki motor, it was like an 82 model air cooled. I think it put out 60 horsepower or something like that. That still bagged those front wheels up in third gear on that little. I mean, I only had 12 inch tires on this car. It weighed a thousand pounds, 500 kilos. And, uh, that thing got up and boogied. I was beating, I was just about keeping up with the V8s. I was blowing away all the V6 stuff. And, uh, that, that was the start of it. And from that point on, I was like, okay, I need to build a rear wheel drive car of this version later on in life. But just the fact I built that in itself was was an awesome achievement and it just kept getting bigger and better from there on. So if you've been listening to the podcast for a while now, each month the podcast has a sponsor that I love and I believe helps the car community. And this month's sponsor does precisely that. I've been a big fan of Fuel for quite some time now, especially when it comes to working out. And I've got some exciting news to share with all of you. I recently discovered Huel's ready-to-drink milk. And it's a total game changer. Not only is it delicious, but I'm a big fan of the chocolate flavour. And I'm a bigger fan of the 26 essential vitamins and minerals you need to go about your day. And let me tell you, it came in super handy during a recent 24-hour trip to a certain German racing track. Instead of eating unhealthy petrol station food, Huel kept me energised and focused on and off track. 
So if you are on the hunt for a quick and easy meal option, go to huel.com forward slash ignition to receive your free t-shirt and shaker and support the podcast. Now, back to the episode. And so then where did you, where did you look for, obviously school's quite a big thing to learn this stuff. Like how is your your uh, your education path your, how did that shape who you are now interesting so like i said going back with uh i started off in high school I, I finished year 10 wasn't enjoying high school didn't consider myself academic at all i was very much hands-on oriented um cutting welding grinding the diagnostics i was always fixing cars growing up um through my teenage years i had the the motorbikes when i was 10 years old that i fixed I, we talked about that before and that Intuition, I think, is such an important part that people, I don't think a lot of people, maybe that's a generalization, it's a hard skill to develop. And the reason why it's a hard skill to develop is I feel a lot of people growing up, they go through the school system, they get to 18, and then they're like, okay, pick a degree, pick a major, pick what you want to do for the rest of your life. And if some people are like, oh, I just want to be a mechanic, and then they go through schooling and then they are in a job, the job's like, you need to fix cars. You're on a time limit. We're, you know, getting charged per hour uh, for the customer and everything. And so they don't get time to really sit and think what exactly is going wrong with the problem, the car, uh, and diagnosing things effectively. They, they do the shotgun approach sometimes where you just, okay, we're going to change that. Oh, it didn't work. Let's try another part. Okay, that didn't work. But just with how I grew up and having access to my dad's shed, and just sitting there and tinkering and thinking about things like what is going on? Why is this not working? How, what are the fundamentals here of the concepts of how two stroke, four stroke engines work? What's the electrical system? How's that work? And then jumbling that all around. It takes time to just sit there and look at a problem and to keep trying new things. And then eventually you get at the end of the line and you're like, I don't know really what's going on. I've tried everything. And then that process of pondering and all of a sudden bang like an idea comes and that's what it is the problem and then you add that to your knowledge bank so I was always asked to fix things growing up and I just was like okay yeah sure I don't know how to fix it but I never let that stop me I always had that open mindset and then everything I came across I fixed and uh, it was bizarre just all sorts of things that just kept developing there but um, going back to schooling so yeah I, I finished year 10 then went and did an associate's degree in electrical engineering um, there was a two-year degree and really found out, I was like, you know what, math is not my thing. I don't really like it. And uh, English as well and reading, all of that side of things I found extremely difficult and boring as heck. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Like, yeah. I didn't like it. I didn't enjoy it. And it turns out, you know, I, I finished that off and um, started working for a little bit. But afterwards, later on in life, I realized I just wasn't really applying myself uh, I, you know, you can't get by without doing homework. You have to do homework. You, you've got to sit there and wrestle with the ideas and let it sink in. And I, I think I might have a couple of learning disabilities, perhaps ADHD. I haven't been officially diagnosed, but I just know how difficult it is for me to learn things. But once I've learned the concept, it's locked in. But just having to deal with figuring out what's the best way to learn. And I think that's, that's been something that's a, a takeaway that's come from that. But um, a pivotal point was uh, when I was 22, I decided to serve as a voluntary missionary for my church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I went over to New Zealand for two years and 
obviously was teaching people about Jesus Christ. And that was one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life up to that point. Like it is not easy to just randomly go up and talk to people about something so sensitive as people's beliefs and you don't even know them. And then trying to transition that uh, from that point and, you know, overcoming the the wall at the start of when you first talk to people. But after finishing that experience, I sat back and I was like, wow, I didn't think I was actually going to get through that. And uh, But I stuck it out and I saw the growth that happened through that. And I, I came to the conclusion, I was like, two people can do anything as long as one of them is God. And I came home and I felt an intense desire to get educated seriously. And I felt to do a Bachelor of Mechanical Engineering. I thought that would complement the skills that I've got. And um, that was a process. I, I applied for the university where I was at, Curtin University, and they said, look, you, you can't get in because you've only done year 10 high school. You need to f- catch up on year 11 and 12 and do, you know, maths, physics and chemistry. So there was a bridging course for that where they um, squash year 11 and 12 maths, physics and chemistry into one semester, oh, which bro. is crazy. Yeah. yeah. And uh, But I couldn't even get into that because they're like, your math is that terrible you need to just take a semester just doing math to get up to speed. So I did the semester in math, did all right. Then I went through the bridging course semester and did pretty good in that. And I was like, okay. And then um, went into mechanical engineering. Was it easy? No, it was really difficult. I found it hard uh, because I'd rushed through all the the math getting up to speed. It, It wasn't really locked into too well. So it was just a struggle the whole time getting through mechanical engineering. Um, and you know, I failed two classes. That's fine. You just, it doesn't define you as a person. I came to realize that there's no dumb students, only dumb teachers that can't teach properly. <laughs> Maybe dumb is not the right word to use there, but, um, no silly students, but silly teachers that just don't teach properly. And, uh, some of those, th- an example of that would be if you're sitting in a, a lecture, a math lecture, and you've, you're trying to take notes down and the teacher's got a PowerPoint presentation up, new concepts you haven't seen, and he's just clicking through it mad. How are you supposed to write down all of what's on the lecture slide and then write down notes on top of that of what he, he's explaining and get it? And you just can't. There's a rate at which you can learn. And if the teacher exceeds that rate in the explanation, you don't have a chance. You have to then go back over it afterwards. But I, I feel... A lot of students shortcut their own abilities by thinking, I'm dumb, I just don't get it, when actually it's nothing to do with them. It's just the process that they're engaged in is incorrect. Uh, so that's that's one example. Uh, and I realized this and I was like, you know what, I'm going to have to take learning into my own hands and put in the extra work to get through it and not just rely on the teacher to teach me everything. So that was what sort of came from the first that first bachelor's degree. So I did bachelor of engineering with honours. I had to do a thesis process, uh, a thesis um, report to get the honours as well. So I did a 100-page thesis report. I I had an engine design that I came up with that I was going to build and test. Uh, So it was design, manufacture, and then test it afterwards. It was a two-stroke concept, and I bought a dirt bike that I was going to then basically just swap the whole top end of the motor with my engine design and keep all the parameters the same and see how they performed against each other. So I spent a year doing that. We had a $400 budget as a thesis. I spent three grand of my own money and uh, put blood, sweat and tears into it. And unfortunately, towards the end, when uh, I went to get it built, 
the school turned around and said, no, we're not building your thesis project anymore. And I was like, how am I supposed to write a hundred page paper on some theoretical idea? You know, you can't just calculate these things. I'm sure you could with software, but my engine design was completely different. And uh, to do a theoretical analysis on it wasn't possible with the amount of time I had. Uh, I needed to build it and test it physically. So it kind of just ruined my thesis a bit. What does that, what does it do to someone that's, that's been told to do this thing and spend so much money? in trying to make their idea work? Like, what does that do to you as a person? Uh, I was pretty devastated. They did 3D print me a top end, a half cut, so I could put it on there. And and it looked cool, like, to kickstart an engine and watch my cycle work. It was awesome, but it would have been way more awesome to see it work in real life and to have actually built it and to see if my uh, theories and engine output, if it was going to be better than what current two-stroke technology was. As far as like what it did to me as a bit, yeah, I was a bit devastated, but I'm used to setbacks and I don't really care, to be honest. You just onto the next thing, onto the next one, next project, and uh, carry on from there. Yeah, I'm no, James. I'm just, I'm just interested in how, how you've learned to, I guess, I'm going back to the missionary times, you've learned to develop this resilience to people. Because, I mean, I know from doing door-to-door sales, people don't want you to come up to them at all. Like, <laughs> people yeah. do not like other people when you're trying to tell them something. Um, so, yeah, I, I completely get it. So, like, how did you carry that? Like, what were the lessons you learned from being a missionary? And like, how did you look at problems now when you go, like, I have to get this finished, I have to get this done? Like, for you, what, what motivates you to go through a challenge like that? Man, missionary, it was the hardest part, I guess, about being a missionary was just transitioning to learning how to talk to people cold turkey like forget yourself uh like when you go sit on a bus nobody wants to talk and you're sitting on a bus and you're like okay i gotta to talk to this person and you're very aware everyone else can hear so having to get over that that mindset and um it comes with time i guess realizing that your deepest darkest fears are not going to come to pass you know that people don't react as bad as you think they're going to react sometimes they do but it, you realize you know the majority of the people pretty friendly pretty nice um and you modify your approach to help facilitate that. It's an interesting question. It did build a lot of resilience. I think just having that mindset, I was like, I'm not going to give up. I'm committed to this. I don't care what happens. Um, and then looking at the the positives, like, okay, if I just get through this and stick my head down, um, I'm going to learn a lot from it and just to persevere, I guess, through it. I don't know. It was It was a very unique, interesting experience. It was a while ago now. I mean, that was... We're going back 2009, so it's a little hard for me just to recall on the spot exactly what a lot has happened since then. Um, but I definitely know it was a defining point, a, a changing point. And just as well, that service aspect, you're literally giving – we don't get paid. I had to pay myself, actually. It was $10,000, which is relatively cheap when you think about all your housing and food and everything being covered for two years. Um, but that voluntary experience and then just serving other people, it, it does something. It changes something inside you, I think. There was one, there was actually a really good story that did come from that where I got to use my, uh, hands on intuition mechanic skills. We bumped into this one guy, he had a similar sort of old scooter. It was a bit bigger engine than what I had when I was 10 years old that I had to fix. Uh, we we're just door knocking into him. We saw the, his kids were riding one of the scooters up and down the driveway. They were fighting over, you know, give me my turn, my turn now and all this stuff. And just talking to the dad. And he's like, yeah, we actually got another scooter out the back, but it just doesn't run. And I was like, oh, I'll fix it. And he's like, no, you don't understand. It's it's never going to run. I'm like, let me let me give it a shot. Like, he's like, no, my granddad, or his dad, so their granddad, he's like, he was a mechanic for 50 years and very good mechanic. And he said that bike will never run again. It will never see the light of day. And I'm like, 
well, what could I have? Just give me a shot. I, let me have a look at it. You know, it can't be that yeah. bad. So he's like, okay, fine, come over on the weekend. So I came over on Saturday, had a look, and um, it was like a three-speed centrifugal clutch, and it had a horizontally mounted cylinder out the front of the motor. It was kind of single tube design, a seat on the back, whatever, two-stroke. And it was seized, locked up completely the motor. And I was like, okay, let's pull the cylinder head off. And then uh, the cylinder was on four dowels. So it allowed me to lift the cylinder, but the piston was just locked up completely in the cylinder. And I was like, okay, how am I going to get this out? So I actually extended it, get, left a, a good gap between the cylinder and the motor, and then just jumped on the kickstart for all life. So it would just slam that cylinder back into the engine I had a whole bunch of WD-40 and spray in there, and I was like, it's either going to snap the conrod coming out or it's going to break something or it's going to work. And I was like, just moving, just a millimetre, just move. If yeah. I get it to move a millimetre, it's going to come out. And I was like, okay, let's just slowly build up a bit more with how hard I was jumping on that kickstart to get down. I didn't want to hit it with the hammer, the piston, because I was like, that's not going to work very well. Um, the force is distributed better using the conrod. So... And I jumped on this thing and it like moved an inch and I'm like, okay, it's moved a tiny bit. And then I just kept inching it out, got the piston out. Then all the piston rings were seized into the piston. What happened? And this just, again, comes from my intuition with tinkering with things, trying different ideas. What had happened is they used, um, instead of buying proper two-stroke oil to burn, some people try and shortcut things or they're just not aware, but they pour engine oil in for the two-stroke and engine oil doesn't burn clean. And what happens is it starts building deposits up on the piston, a powder, and that becomes really hard and turns into like a ceramic. It's like super hard to scrape off. But then that gets rid of the clearance in the bore and the piston just locks up in there and that's it. It's done. And then all the piston rings as well get that that powder melted in there and then they're seized into the piston. It loses compression. So I got the piston out. I was like, let me take it home. And I just slowly over about five hours just worked the piston ring out slowly without snapping it. Got it freed up, cleaned everything up, put it back together, and I got this thing running. And oh man, that was a that was a pretty cool highlight. <laughs> he couldn't believe it. The kids were like super ecstatic. Then they had two little motorbikes to ride around on. And yeah, it was, it was a great relationship we were able to develop from there. No, it's, a, it's amazingly selfless that to to do that for you, where you're not you're not going to gain anything out of that. You're not going to benefit from that apart from learning something new, I guess. Um, and is, is, does that seem like it's always been like a driving force for you is, is just the ability to learn something new when it comes to I life. think I think being told no and like, no, you can't yeah. do that, that that really gets me up. So when people are like, no, you can't build a motorized push bike. When I was 13, I was like, watch me. And then yeah. three, four days later, you know, I had it running. I was burning up and down the street on this thing. And, and uh, yeah, just having that that mindset like, oh, no, you can't put a motorbike engine in your car. Okay, what, it's going to happen. Like, And it does. And so when we look at looking forward to your life and what was to come, James, like what, what what do people now tell you that you can't do? And is is there anything you're determined to prove to the people you can do? Yeah. Getting into Formula Three racing. <laughs> it's like it's not an easy thing to do. Um, especially so right now I'm in America, I'm doing the that um the another degree, obviously, the automotive engineering technology, trying to get the advanced vehicle systems at the same time. Uh being a student for as long as I've been without having to work, you could imagine my financial situation and then living in a different country and, you know, job restrictions, all that sort of stuff. Um, it's made it quite difficult. And then being ambitious, like, yeah, I'm just going to jump into Formula 3 racing. How do you, people, all my friends are like, you don't just get opportunities like that. How do you just jump into it, you know? Um, and again, just that mindset, like being open-minded, not exactly knowing the path, but just being willing to try. Uh, yeah. If you you know you miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take right, 
So, and just having a track record of doing just crazy things in general. <laughs> um, the Formula 3 thing came about, so I've been trying now for about a year and a half to get into Formula 3 racing this year. Hopefully something's going to come about. But in the year and a half time, the amount of networking and things that I've done, uh, I've got a seat in Formula 3. I've got a car, a Formula 3 car. I just need the sponsorship money now to get mm. to the race and to drive. And it's about $10,000 a race on the, the minimum end. That's the bare bones sort of side yeah. of things. Um, but, you know, how that came about, interesting story. So I did some sales over here, some door knocking as well, um, just selling pest control, funny enough. that's uh, Is that what you did? Alarms. Oh, you did alarms? Yeah, yeah. I did alarms. A little yeah. bit as well. I found, uh, alarms are a bit trickier. You got to qualify people a lot more. Whereas pest control, it's like yeah, just a one year contract, five minute sale. Um, it's not bad. So I was doing that for a little bit, and um, I caught COVID two years back at the end of that, just before I was about to go back to school, and it gave me time to sort of reflect and ponder exactly where I was at in life and the direction I wanted to go, and if it was lining up with my passion. Uh, that ten days worth of quarantine was good. I was on Instagram a lot, just looking at a lot of motivational uh, reels. And, you know, Bob Proctor, he's always talking about find your passion. And I was just questioning, like, what were my passions? Originally, up to that point, believe it or not, so I was going to become a car manufacturer. Uh, I even actually, I tried tried to approach Apple um, in California, Tim Cook. I tried to get an interview with him because I feel like I hear they're building this electric car, Apple making an electric car, and I'm like, you need a guy that understands cars, how they should drive, then the engineering aspect of things, the mechanic side of things, working on cars. Like if you have one person that's spearheading the whole thing, the operation, like you've got a good chance of producing something pretty cool, being able to liaise with all the engineers. So I I actually tried to go over to California and speak to Tim Cook. Didn't happen. Couldn't get past, I don't know, the guys just wouldn't relay a message on to him. So whatever. His loss, but that's what I was going to do up until the time. And then, uh, yeah, I was just pondering about what's my passion and engineering competitions. I haven't talked much about that, but I've won a lot of engineering competitions, just one off out of the box thinking design. Um, Pinewood Derby, particularly, did a bunch of that over here. And so I was like, I like engineering, I like building things, and I like winning competitions, but I also have this passion for race car driving and uh, very good at it as well. I was a state go kart champion back home. But just an opportunity never arose back in Australia. I feel Australia is very hard to get opportunities versus being in America. So at the end of that 10 days, I just had the thought, okay, I need to go back to Provo in Utah and just be around the school. There's another school there that's a church school. So I go to BYU um, in Idaho, so Brigham Young University. And uh, it's my church's school that they have. They help a lot of people out. So I was in the one in Provo just hanging out with a friend there and they had some Hispanic festival on market. It's like a food market. I'm like, what is this? And I just had the thought to go to it. And I was like, okay, whatever. So I'm cruising on my Segway around and there's just food market everywhere. And I'm like, this is a waste of time. And then there was a stage I saw and they were doing performances and then right next to the stage is a Formula 3 race car. And I'm like, get out of here. I was like, no way. What is this doing there? It was literally after, as I was about to leave. And I went up there and I just took a couple of photos and I was like, what is this doing here? And then I found out Edwin Gualatuna, he's the owner. He used to race back 10, 15 years ago. And he's like, yeah, I'm starting a team up. And I'm like, I'm your driver. I'm your mechanic. Let's go. 
And yeah, yeah we formed a, a good solid friendship from that point on. And that's just opened up doors. So he's had the, he's got the car and then I've got the mechanic experience plus the racing experience. And I was able to help him get this car up to speed. It needed a new clutch. I did all of this stuff for just free, just helping out, saved him. You know, they quoted him $5,000 for a clutch. I did it for 180 bucks. Just yeah. it didn't need a full clutch, just needed plates anyway. Um, so then that started to develop into a, a really good relationship, uh, where we're able to accomplish a lot of things. So some of the things we've we've done is we've been able to drive the car on the street around Utah. We've got permission from four different cities, so Salt Lake, Provo, Vineyard, and Orem. And uh, it's at a point now that police don't need to patrol us. They're like, look, just keep to the road rules and you're fine. And so, yeah, we've got drones flying behind us. We're driving this car on the street. And it's, it's just mind-boggling to see people just the heads turn like you're at traffic lights people are jumping out their cars and taking a photo so yeah recently three weeks back now um we were the first people in utah to drive a formula three race car on the streets what i really want to do though is i want to make a hoonigan video (laughs) (laughs) like and that's that's one of the plans this year i got a guy that's got a nascar and i'm going to see if i can borrow his nascar and just go tear up on the streets and and make it happen yeah get a video out why not that's fantastic. And is, is there anything you like? You're looking at a spot, looking for a sponsor. You, you like how are you approach that? Because I mean, I've spoken to quite a couple of racing drivers, and one of them is trying to get into Formula Three over here in British Formula Three. And uh-huh. he said he told me that the hardest thing is is to convince people that that it's a marketing exercise that's going to net you return. So, like, how are you? What's your approach to when you go look for sponsors and you go look for people that? Yeah, the one that want to invest. Like, what is your pitch? Yeah, absolutely. And that's the hard thing, and that's what I've come up against the whole time. They're like, if we put in hundred thousand dollars, how do we see the return on investment? How do we measure that? More importantly, and my the way I'm looking at it, an idea is: look, you become our title sponsor. We'll plaster your company's name on the car. We'll get it wrapped, and then we'll also put a QR code on the car. And when people are taking pictures of the car, a lot of people love to when we're at, at shows, festivals. People love to come up, sit in the car, take a photo and whatever. And if that QR code, we can have that um, take them to a special website that's been designed. And then you can physically measure how many people have visited that website. And then people that have bought products from that website, you can directly measure it that way. So that's kind of the pitch that I've been been using at the moment. I have been approaching companies for the last year. It's It's been just tricky to get that investment. And it's very unique what we're doing as well. It's like, look, we're driving the car on the streets as well. Like it's getting a lot of exposure. So it's been hard to try and juggle that while doing school. Um, I'm not going to lie at the same time, but this year I just finished school now and I've got from now until October. So, you know, good six months at least to just push the racing again forward. Yeah. Fantastic. I mean, just out of curiosity, what is it like being in school for, I'm guessing over, over 20 years? So this degree, I set the the goalpost a bit higher. I like to, you know, not do things twice and have the same results. So my goal was to get a 4.0 straight A's in all of my classes. So far, you know, I've been here at school nine semesters um, in this degree and I've gotten straight A's. So I think it was like 47 classes so far. I've gotten just straight A's in, not even an A minus, just perfect 4.0. And that, like, it feels super good from going from high school dropout so now basically, you know, having three engineering degrees, potentially four, we'll see what happens. But that has totally just changed my mindset and my belief about what my abilities are in myself. And honestly, I really feel 
a lot of people drop out of school and a lot of people just think school isn't for them. But understanding, if you can figure out how you learn and realize that, you know, teachers, the way they present material isn't the best. ChatGPT's just come out. That's a fantastic resource to just summarize. I'll get lecture notes and I'll just summarize. I'll just copy paste it into ChatGPT. Give me a summary of this. Explain it simpler. You know, um, there's a lot of resources out there now, especially to to help people learn if you can just put the time in. Yeah, no, and James, I'm looking to the future. Like, if you do get into Formula Three, what would that feel like for you? Oh, it'd be amazing. I want to get the Formula One to be honest. Like, I really, if I could get my wish granted, it would be being a driver in Formula One, and then every year they redesign the car. And so, I really feel as a race driver and understanding how a car should feel and drive like, and also having the mechanic background. I think I could put a lot of important feedback back into the design process and come up with some really unique ideas. So that would be that would be the goal if I could get to Formula One. But funny enough, actually, okay, so a little side story. I actually applied for Mercedes Formula One. Just like they just had a bunch of placements. And I'm like, yeah, I'm a student. I could get into a student placement, 13-month placement in the UK. And they gave me an interview. And uh, it was 3.30 in the morning, my time. I had to do a 10-minute presentation. Then uh, it was on the HPP team, so designing the powertrain hybrid yeah. system. And uh, a 13-month placement, student placement. I was excited. I thought I was going to get it. I showed all of my stuff that I've done, built this motorbike engine car as well, which we haven't talked about much. But uh, they were impressed. And then I didn't get the job. I was like, what the heck? How did you turn me down? <laughs> like, there's no better student, surely. And I was a bit annoyed, so I wrote them back an email. I'm like, did I do something wrong? I just want to get some feedback for, you know, next time I'm trying out. And they actually turned around and said, no, you, we just feel you're overqualified and you'd probably be bored in the student position. <laughs> and I was like, give me a shot. Come on. Like, what? So they're like, yeah, you should, uh, we suggest applying for a full-time role here. And I was like, okay, whatever. Maybe they're just fobbing me off. I don't know. But yeah, that was a bit disappointing. I was looking forward to try. I was going to try and like sneak in the back door, you know. Once I get on a team, I'm like, hey, just uh, let me take the car around for a couple of laps. <laughs> now, well, the thing is, though, like to 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 be overqualified for a, to, regardless of the position, an F1 team, like that must that must give you a pretty pretty good like you know buzz in terms of like. Yeah, it, it was good when I got that email. But I was not going to lie. I was like, oh, good, okay, fine, like that. I'll I'll take that. You know, maybe I'll dump down my resume next time I apply for a Formula One job. Yeah, and James, I know we can't come to the end here, but there are five questions that I normally do ask at the end of the podcast, and the first one being, what is your ultimate three-car garage? Oh, gosh, mate. Um, you know, I'm okay, let's put a Formula One in there. Why not? Yeah, sure. Second car would have to be a car I build that I purposely designed the way I want everything to be super fast and just everything a car should be. That's that's That would be something I want to build as well. And then uh, third car... You know, I've been quite – oh, dang it. I don't know. Cohen Seg, let's throw a Cohen Seg in there. They're, they're pretty good, actually. I'm impressed with what they're doing with their technology with how um, small their facility is, to be honest. But I do like Porsche as well. I think everyone loves Porsche. I don't think I've spoken to a car enthusiast that doesn't doesn't appreciate what they're doing. <laughs> yep. Uh, just out of interest, this 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 car you build, I mean, how many cylinders, if cylinders, hybrid? Like, what what is the what is the pitch to someone that – say like, say, say I was to invest – a billion pounds in this car like what would it be you know that's that's hard because if, as an engineering mind everything's a trade-off so it's like okay you want a big engine then you're going to sacrifice handling because the car's heavy and things like that but one of the things i would not trade off is it's got a wet rev to twenty thousand rpm <laughs> okay <laughs> and, um, 
And then, you know, turboed and supercharged. I don't like having turbo lag, but so it'd have to be both. It's got to be plus 1500 horsepower. Uh, all wheel drive, definitely. Um, I, I like the sound of V10s, V10, V10 Formula One race cars, probably on point. Um, so definitely that paddle shift. Um, but also the option of having it full manual if you wanted mm. as well, which is possible to do. Um, so yeah, I think they give you a bit of a rough idea. Yeah, and definitely. just to, and then I just go on the streets of California and do a Hoonigan video in it. Why not? You know, just doing a big drift at like 150 mile an hour across five lanes. Just <laughs> that one of those one of those mile long burnouts. <laughs> yep. Cool. Uh, and the next question being, you've only got one car um, to drive on any road or track, and you can only do it once. Where would you go, and what would you take? You know, I'm not too familiar with all the race tracks that are out there, but. I have enjoyed the GT3 RS. That's probably been one of the best cars I've driven so far, the Porsche GT3 RS on the mm. racetrack. Give me one of those, but with a lot more power. You just, would you say it's underpowered then? Yeah, yeah, definitely. There's a lot more potential. I'd love to work alongside Porsche, actually, and and help them develop a car as well. Oh, there's so many options I've got to do, yeah. But uh, it was a bit underpowered, I felt. I, I mean, I just jumped straight in and I adapted to the car in, within five minutes. And I was like, okay, give me more, give me more. I think that's a problem with a race driver. Nothing's ever fast enough. You just like, oh yeah, it feels kind of perky, and then you're like, I'm bored. Give me some more power. You know, I'm coming out of the, the corner in fourth gear. I want it to be just lighting tires up, not like I'm in it, and it's not, it's not got more to go. Yeah, bro. And the next question is, if money was no object and you could do anything for a living, um, what would you be doing? I would, I would definitely own my own Formula One team. So, uh, funny enough, actually, there's an opportunity that's come up um there's a company called baldwin aerospace and so this is kind of interesting he feels his aerospace company and jet propulsion developing that side of things he feels there's a lot of similarities between the technology and that and formula one and he feels fia regulations in formula one are holding technology back and stopping it from progressing and so he wants to bring out a new formula one series without as much regulations to help push technology forward. So um, Justin Pearson, the CEO, he just reached out to me a month and a half ago and wants me to get on board for designing these new Formula One type of cars to get a series started off. So that's in the pipe work as well. <laughs> that's brilliant. It's amazing, amazing what can come up if you just, if you're open to things yeah. as well. Yeah. Uh, and the advice, next question is the advice you give to a younger James or someone that wants to pursue something with their passion. Oh, make sure you just go for it. Like, honestly, figure out very specifically what your passion is and what it isn't. And then line yourself up with that and, and go for it. Surround yourself with people that are going to get you in that right direction. Yeah. There's a, there's a brilliant um, concept called Icky Guy. And as the guy who wrote the book, he, his main thing is just, just find the things you don't like doing. Because you find enough of those, you'll eventually learn other things you do like doing. And that's a lot easier to find out. No, absolutely. And part of the reason why, like I was going back to when I got COVID, when I was thinking about being a car manufacturer, some of the things I didn't like about that, I was like, is this really my passion? And I was like, it sounds awful designing and manufacturing plants and having to then also deal with all the car regulations, you know, safety and everything, airbags, all of that side of stuff, all the reading, that side of things. I was like, yeah. I much prefer racing. So that was a, a pivotal point in figuring out what I didn't like and then the things I did like and then going for it. Like, honestly, how quickly it's happened, the turnaround, like a year and a half, like it was in that 10-day period, I made a decision. I'm like, I'm going to race in Formula 3. And five days later, I was in a Formula 3 car. Literally, like that's how quick everything in my life transitioned. 
just from becoming super clear. And then I was in Georgia, Atlanta. I drove 30 hours back to Provo um, and then was just around there for two days and then bumped into this guy, Edwin, with his his Formula 3 car. So anything can happen. That's the amazing, amazing opportunities that come if you, like, even just, just like, code or subconscious with things you want to do. And then your brain just kind of finds them. And James, the last the last question is: is what do you love most about? Well, it'd be different for you. I guess what do you most what do you love most about cars? Oh man, that feeling of putting it on the limit and just when you got a fast car, a huge acceleration that handles well, that feeling of you just become one with the car. Mm. That, that you know, you come out of the corner, you're feeling it just crab walking slightly. He's putting the foot into it, and then it's a 3D experience, as my dad would say. He's like, "Give me the 3D experience." You're in the car, you got the noise, you got the sound, you got, you know, the the physics acting on your body, and uh, there's nothing more exhilarating than that. Yeah, it's definitely that 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 experience is visceral, isn't it? There is nothing quite like it. You can't replicate the feeling of being in a car, or go kart, race car, whatever it is, and then you being the thing that guides you through the the path, the road, the track, whatever it is that. It's like almost a state of flow for most car users, isn't it? That that point where you're yeah, the state of flow. That's exactly what it is. And I think just with my ADHD mind and how that feels, yeah, you you get into that that flow state, and I think that's that's part of what makes it so special. You just you feel alive and you feel just awesome at, at what you're doing. If you're a really good driver and you you just know where the limits are, and you're like, I am right there, like I am on that spot. And it just, yeah, you just know you're doing something well. And that's, that's a great experience. Uh, James, it's been a pleasure to get to know a bit more about you and your journey. And if people want to invest and they happen to be listening to this and they're looking for someone to either start a new F1 series or to rep their brand, where can people find you? Um, my Instagram is the best. It's James from Perth. So I'm from Perth, Australia. It seems to be becoming a bit of a brand name, actually. <laughs> so, yeah, Instagram is the easiest to reach out to me. It's an open profile, so anyone can just message me on there. Brilliant. Uh, well, I can say thank you for being honest. But, uh, and there we go. Thanks, Harry. I appreciate the podcast interview. Instead of this month's episodes being sponsored by a great company giving you something as a thank you for listening, I wanted to announce something special. Ignition is releasing a clothing line. This clothing line is something that we've been working on for quite a while now, and behind the scenes, been figuring out how could we give back and the way you want to give back is give designers 30% of everything that's sold. So if you buy a t-shirt, 30% of the profits from that t-shirt will go directly to the artist. It's just a way for us to show the great and amazing talent that is in the automotive and motorsport worlds. And that means if you do have a design or an idea for a clothing line, give us a message. Email me at harry at ignitionpod.com. That's harry at ignitionpod.com. I'd love to have a chat. But anyway, back to the episode. Oh, and before you go... Podcast listeners get 15% off. So check the show notes below for that code for you. I wanted to say a massive well done and thank you for taking your time to listen to what me and my guests have to say. This podcast was designed to help people in the automotive and motorsport industries. And so if you think I've done that, please hit follow on this app. I would really appreciate it and it would help us get bigger and better guests. See you next time.